Welcome back to the God Story podcast, exploring the big picture or the big story of the Bible to bring us back to the gospel. And I'm back in Palmerston North, New Zealand at Grace Presbyterian Church with Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid. Ian, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Brent. Oh, it's a pleasure as always. Now, today, Ian, having had the discussion with uh, Gordon Smith on the Holy Spirit last week, which I really enjoyed, or last time, I should say, today we're going to do something a little different in this podcast because we're going to deal with some listener feedback, and particularly with some pressing issues which you and I have been asked about over the past few weeks as we've done these podcasts. And those issues are, which Bible translation do we recommend How can we be sure of our salvation, which is a subject that we've dealt with through the podcast, but I think we just need to sum it up for folk. Uh, The prosperity gospel, which is an interesting one here. And how can we trust God in a time of COVID? They're good questions, aren't they? They're they're really great questions, and they've come to me from various people who've who've been listening. I think they're terrific. So first, can we turn to the subject of Bible translations? Now, do you want to go through the three or two or three different types of Bible translations for people? Yeah, so there's kind of generally there's kind of three types of translations. Uh, there's the there's the literal translation, uh, so books, uh, Bibles like the New American Standard Bible and the ESV mostly is like that and uh, the King James Version is like that. And so that that's trying to go trying to go word for word kind of in terms of the the interpretation then there's what's called dynamic equivalence which is trying to go idea for idea or phrase for phrase uh, and trying to to kind of capture some of the other things that's going on in the text uh, in trying to translate it in in translating those things Uh, and then kind of after that there's kind of free translations which is like the message which which kind of just um, kind of goes from the kind of the the whole kind of passage, looking at the idea of the passage and, and translating the the ideas that are there, rather than anything specifically. Kind of yeah, yeah, and they're, they're they're called free translations, and some of them are very free when you read them. Message is very free. You know what? The freest one is the Kiwi Bible. Have you ever, ever read the? Oh, the I've Kiwi never Bible? come across the Kiwi Bible. I think it's basically it's the same as the Aussie Bible, which was which is. But with maybe a few little tweaks, it's it's not great. I'll say it's quite cringy. It, it, it's a good attempt, but it's uh, it's quite cringy. It, it's kind of got the you know kind of Jesus was talking to them. They're a pack of galahs and stuff like that. Oh yeah, I think I have. Yes, I have come across that one. I think yeah. So now you have. Uh, I know you studied Greek as I. We both had to. Uh, did you do Hebrew as well at college? I did a year of Hebrew. You did a year of Hebrew, man. You deserve a medal. It was. I could only manage. I struggled enough with Greek, let alone trying to learn Hebrew. So you've done both the original languages. So in your view, which translations are closest? Do you think to the original? Well, I mean that's a really difficult question. Yeah, I know, <laughs> isn't it? And I think there's. I think we have this idea in our in our minds that. The closer we get, the better the translation. And it's not always the case. Uh, that My personal view is that the translation that you use that is helpful for you to, for reading God's Word, uh, that's the one that you should use. And so if, you, if, if we think that a literal translation is the best, well, you might as well go read Greek and Hebrew because you'll find that, that, that it's still a translation, right? And so there are still things that are going to be different. And you can only get the, the literal translation from the actual 
uh, kind of Greek and Hebrew. And it's worth pointing out that it's very difficult, or even, I mean, I'm going to ask the question, is it actually ever possible to accurately translate word for word into um, modern English from another language? No, and you can't do that. When you, have you ever kind of watched a show where it's been dubbed into English, but you've also got the, tra- the kind of the subtitles on, and what they're saying is different to the subtitles, and it, and it can carry totally different meaning, even though it's mm. kind of the, it's mm. kind of the same thing. Mm. That that's the problem is that when you we convey or translate something, it we we also can have to make decisions about what meaning and things like that. And and there are some words I think particularly of Hesed, this word and that's used for God's mercy in the King James, loving kindness in a lot of the modern translations. Uh, that word actually in the Hebrew, I understand, really connotes both or carries both qualities. And it's very difficult in a modern translation to actually f- put both of them in, the, in there. So translators tend to get up for either one or the other. Mm. Am I right? I, I believe so. Mm. <laughs> yeah, mm. My Hebrew is not that good. But you you do get this idea that you, you have the kind of the the idea that's there. But even more than that, you've got kind of stuff sitting behind uh, some of the, the the words that are being used or the structure of the of the passage. Because in in Greek, the word order is not so important, but it's kind of the kind of the, the structure of the of the language is important. And and to, to convey that literally you just can't do that. Are there any translations or can we think of some translations which are closer uh, to the Greek of the New Testament than, than others? I suppose we have to be careful when we say this, but... Yeah, well, there are in terms of... I think the NASB definitely... It's the New American Standard Bible mm. is and the ESV probably is. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're better. I think that that's the that's the grade we need to, to kind of understand is that one is not necessarily better than, than the other. I, for me, it's what is your purpose in reading it? Is it, is it for study? Mm-hmm. Then maybe go for a closer translation. Uh, if it's just for your daily Bible reading, then me personally, I, I, I use the New Living Translation. I know that sounds oh, okay. yep. sacrilege maybe, but no. it's just an e- I just, it's fine. I find it quite easy to read and I don't have to kind of work it out, out you know, exactly what's going on. It kind of helps me just kind of get, get through the reading. Yeah. Now, Rita, am I right in thinking, because this whole area of textual criticism is, is way beyond my... <laughs> beyond my level, that in uh, the King James, for example, is often pointed to by folk because it, it is part of this tradition called the Textus Receptus, whereas a lot of modern translations use manuscript traditions that are much, much older than Textus Receptus. What, what's this whole argument about? How does it work? Yeah, it's a little bit confusing, but the idea was uh, that, I can't remember what year it was, but... Um, Somewhere after the Reformation. We know yeah, that. It was, that was after the Reformation. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's a big period of time, but that the, uh, the church kind of got together and said, these are the manuscripts we have, and this is now God's word. The, these are the, the original manuscripts from the Greek and the Hebrew. This is now God's word. And we're going to translate it from that. And it was kind of authorised by the church. Now, after that period, new manuscripts popped up from time to time particularly Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, that didn't come until the 1950s and 60s. And so it's kind of after that time uh, that new these new manuscripts pop up and they're closer to the date to the original manuscripts. And so what do you do with that? Do So some people say, no, the text is Receptus. That is the received text, the, the authorised text, and that's what we should translate from. 
uh, when other people are saying, no, even though this is not authorised by the church, these are still manuscripts that, which are probably in some ways better to be translating from. Is there uh, still any merit in uh, using the King James Version, do you think? Oh, why not? You kind of, it's a beautiful translation. Yeah, and I think it was, when you look at it, it's one of the most important pieces of writing, not only for the church, but probably for the English language as well, wasn't it? Oh, I, th- I think uh, its its influence, along with Shakespeare, is, is paramount in, in English, in literature, and its influence on on literature and words and so forth, no, no doubt about it. Well, I think if you look at Tyndale, kind of, who's a little bit before that, but... They, they say that he probably had as much influence on the English language as Shakespeare does, which is kind yeah. of interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, what about, that's the King James. What about some of the, what are some of the, you've mentioned the New American Standard. If someone wants to really get into Scripture and study it word for word, who maybe doesn't want to have the struggle <laughs> of learning Hebrew or Greek uh, or have the time, what's a good translation that you would uh, advise? Yeah, I would say the New American Standard Bible or the uh, ESV is very good I like ESV, uh, as yeah, well. Yeah. And I think it, for me personally, it's what do you enjoy doing? What, what do you find reading? And so I don't think there's necessarily one that is better than the other in that sense. Yes, there are bad translations. There are definitely some terrible translations that you should not go to. Uh, But some of those ones which are kind of common across many churches, many different denominations, they've been recognised that they're good. They're good translations. Mm, Okay, that's that dealt with. (laughs) (laughs) Ten minutes on Bible translations. We hope that's helpful. Um, But uh, question number two from listeners. This is a biggie. Um, How can we be sure of our salvation? Now, yes, well, we can understand why that would be. So um, we've tackled this in previous podcasts, Ian, but let's go over it again. Can we have assurance of salvation? Yes, we can. But the thing is that what we want is some kind of internal sign of our salvation. So we want to we want to feel good about ourselves, you know, about something, or we want to have some evidence in our lives, somewhere, whether it's by a spiritual gift or by how we live or something that we kind of done or, or kind of some experience maybe, uh, but they are not assurances of salvation. It must be external. It must be, rather than subjective, it must be objective. It must be outside of ourselves. And I think the only th- only place to go to can be Jesus' resurrection. That must be uh, the place that, yes, your salvation is sure because he died, he was resurrected bodily, he is now in heaven reigning, and because of that, he has called you into his kingdom. What about, and we dealt with this when we did Hebrews 6, what about those warning passages? And Hebrews 6 is one of them. Yeah, and I think you need to read them in context of what's going on. That the writer of Hebrews is not saying you, you can fall away when God has called you into his kingdom. He will take you all the way in. That is not the possibility. The, the problem is that the people that are being written to in Hebrews are a group of people who are working out who Jesus is. And they're trying to work out, hey, are you? is Jesus really who he said he is? Uh, is he really the son of God? And so he's warning them, and he's warning them very harshly there, that you will fall away in the sense of that you haven't gone all the way in. How does justification help us? We're going to come on and talk about justification more when we deal with Hebrews 
9 and 10, I think. Um, but how does justification help us understand our salvation? What sort of assurance does that give us? Well, it's a legal declaration that's outside of ourselves. And I think that's the most important part of it, isn't it? Is that it is God saying, you are justified in my eyes. There's nothing you can do or can't do to get in or out of that. And so it's not about what you have done. It is about what Jesus has done. And if Jesus has died and been resurrected and now reigns, well then, what can you do about that? Nothing. It's it's God's declaration on you. And it's a declarative, objective act outside ourselves. So God... God says you are justified and uh, you, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us. How, do, how does that work? Well, God says to us, hey, you couldn't live up to my standard, but Jesus has lived up to my standard because he's part of the Godhead uh, and I'm giving you his righteousness uh, and I'm taking on his sin, your sin, sorry, onto, mm. on, onto him. Yeah. Mm. So it's like a transfer. We, we, we are given Jesus' righteousness. and So when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness, not our sin. And Jesus takes our sin upon himself on the cross and pays for it once and for all, as Hebrews reminds us, again and again. Yeah, it's an exchange, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So do you think that's enough on that then? Well, I think, I think we need to be understanding, though, that this is we all want something to kind of make us feel like we're saved you know, in terms of it's a common problem. And so don't feel like you're kind of getting down in the dumps because you, you, you don't feel like you're saved. I think the thing is that we just need to keep coming back to Jesus. And we all get, get there are all periods in, it, in all of our lives where it's like, oh, do I really trust Jesus? Do I, is this really true? And that's okay. We need to explore those things. But the, the key to it is keep coming back to Jesus and, and seeing what he has done rather than what you have done. Yeah, and so again, we, we, we warn about uh, subjective feelings and placing too much emphasis on those yep. and instead focusing on the objective reality, which is that Christ has died and paid for your sin and uh, you're safe and you're safe in, 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 the, in the hands of God. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So that's number two. Uh, number three question, third big question that uh, we've had thrown at us is about the prosperity gospel. Now, we've talked about this a little bit, Ian, over the past few weeks. What on earth is the prosperity gospel and how does it work if it works at all? What's well, attractive, isn't it? It's this idea that a God will bless you when you either give to him or you live in a certain way. And so God will bless you financially or physically, whatever it is, uh, with, with gifts, if you are living in a way that kind of he, he wants you to live and giving to his church or giving to certain people. I've heard it uh, often stated as boldly as God wants to make you rich. It's never worked for me, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it kind of is that. And I mean, there's the... It's that you need more money, you know, kind of. And, and how do you do that? You... You give money to a particular church or you give money to a particular person and that's how God will, you know, you kind of sow a, a seed and God will repay it, you know, tenfold or whatever it is. I've often heard people tell me that uh, it's tied up with the idea of our words, almost like a self-actualization or self-realization movement. So if you only have the faith, uh, and this has been said to uh, folk who've, who've been ill with cancer, for example, uh, people have said to them, if you only have enough faith, you can speak the word and pray and you will be healed. And if you're not healed of your cancer, you simply don't have enough faith and it's all your fault. 
putting it crudely, but that's more or less the gist of it. Yeah, it's almost like magic, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of you just say this, and you and you have the power to bring your future into being. Yeah, and you know, in some sense, that that kind of the power of positive thinking thing, that they kind of work in, a, in in little ways, don't they? But that is not how that is, God is not interested in that. That's not how He works, and it's kind of a total misunderstanding of the gospel. Mm. Uh, how, how does it often end up in works and and in legalism? Well, I think you've, hit, you've just kind of said it. It's, kind of, it's about what I do in terms of how much faith I have uh, and work and the kind of the faith becomes the work, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, that I have to do something to get something out of God. That's what legalism ultimately is about. It's about trying to get something out of God, God's favour by what I do. Uh, and, you know, and we just make that work faith. Yes, and at the end it's a performance-based thing, isn't it? So if I don't get enough blessing, if I don't get rich enough, or God doesn't shower me with blessings immediately, then I must have done something wrong. I can't be performing well enough for God. And again, we're back to works and a denial of the gospel. Well, and also, where's the, where's the hope? Where's the assurance in that? Because I'm constantly thinking, oh, maybe I've offended God. You know, If anything bad comes into my life... I, I, I can't see it as a blessing that God has brought into my life to grow me as a Christian. Uh, it has to be the opposite. It's how have I offended God? What have I possibly done to, to, to kind of deserve this? And in the prosperity gospel, there seems to me to be no th- place for a theology of suffering. So we can... Uh, God doesn't want us to suffer. We can just pray it away and sickness can be just cast away. But the Bible doesn't seem to speak of evil and suffering like that. I mean, you look at what happened to Job in the book of Job. Yeah, and I think really the Bible has the only kind of robust understanding of suffering. When you look at all philosophies and, and other religions, they they most of them deal with suffering, but I don't think that they deal they don't deal with it in the same way that the Bible does. That suffering uh, is used by God in this strange way for his glory, ultimately, for our good and glory. With John Piper, I think, has a book uh, called, you know, kind of suffering, the gift that nobody wants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Such an apt title, but it really, it really hits the nail on the head that we need to have a strong, robust understanding of suffering that is not something that God brings into our lives because he hates us, but actually he brings it to, to reveal things about us. Okay, well, that brings us neatly on to topic number four, which uh, we've been asked about. And a really, really pressing and important one for this day and age. How can we trust God in a time of COVID? How can we trust God in a time of COVID? And I suppose we've started to talk about it, uh, Rito, when we're talking about uh, evil and suffering. And and, uh, has God allowed this to happen? Has he permitted it to happen? And why does God permit suffering and evil in the world, do you think? Yes, he has. I don't know if there's a difference between allowed and permitted. Is there a difference? I don't know. But um, I like the word permitted. Mm. You know Uh, what I mean. Yeah, yeah, Mm. exactly. Yes, he does permit it. Does he bring it? Uh, In his sovereignty, we would say yes and no, that he is not the cause of evil, uh, but he has created a world that he is sovereign over in... Uh, and and it will, he will bring it to its end in the sense of uh, that he will use it for his glory and our good. And I, I think the, the big thing that, that we need to keep coming back to is why would God allow these things? What, what's his purpose in doing these things? And when we read scripture, when we re- particularly read the New Testament, 
It's for his glory, but ultimately it's for the good of his people. And so he's reshaping the church uh, and he's spreading his kingdom through these means. How does our understanding or how can our understanding of God's sovereignty help us in, uh, see in this discussion? Yeah, it's a, that, that is a really good question. And I think we need to kind of have a bigger picture of what is going on. That what is God doing? He's exposing the rebellion against him. And he does that through various means, but particularly through difficult things like this. He's exposing everyone's heart, those outside of the church and those within the church. He's exposing what we're really trusting in. And I think this is the, the good thing that he's doing through these these things. Even though God doesn't necessarily kind of want us to to kind of face sin and face hardship, he uses those things for his good uh, in exposing the things that we're really trusting in, showing us how we're not trusting in him. So how can we see sickness? How, how do we theo- think theologically about something like a virus? Yeah, I think it, that, that, that's another interesting thing, isn't it? That people often say, you have this sickness because you disobeyed God in this way. So they they make it specific about that sin and suffering is equated to a specific sin. You have this cancer because you sinned in this way. And that, that's just rubbish, really, uh, that we all face sin and and suffering and, and sickness because of it's a symptom of sin uh, in a general way. Yeah, sure, there might be some specific things where relationship breaks down, breakdowns that happen because of specific sin, but but sickness and suffering are generally just... We live in a fallen world, and it's it's about living out of a relationship with God. But God somehow, in his glory, in his mystery, he uses those things to kind of reveal himself, reveal who he is, and to reshape us. What do you say to someone who's listening who's really fearful for their life, uh, be it a Christian person or a, a non-Christian person, who's really fearful for their life and, and really afraid for the future, for themselves and their children? I think there's two different fears that we've seen pop up in this. One is the fear of the virus, uh, and the other one is really the fear of the government, what, what the government's doing. And I think both, are, I think, are rational fears in, in some sense, uh, but and the world is a scary place. There's no, there's no doubt about that from, from both of those ends because we can we should be in some sense there's a fear of other human beings, but we need to look to something higher. And I think this is where the Book of Revelation is really helpful. That mm. What it does is it points us to what is really going on. That the idea that that God is re- you know the curtain is drawn back on history, uh, and what is really happening is revealed. That's the idea of Revelation. Is what's really happening. History is being revealed. And what do we see? God is building his kingdom. God is being glorified. He's calling his people to himself. Mm. What's your advice to people who are going through uh, self-isolation, who are separated from their families, who are really struggling with feelings of loneliness and, and isolation through lockdowns? How, how, do we help, how can we help people think pastorally and theologically about these situations? It's hard, isn't it? You know those things because that's not what we're meant for as human beings. We are meant for relationships. Well, this is. I just. I'm just. I'm going to jump in here because this is really. That's you put your finger right on the critical point. That this whole uh, pandemic and response to the pandemic works has worked so much against us as social beings, and I think that's what so many of us have found so difficult. Yeah, and my advice would be. Try and connect with people as much as you can, you know, in ways that you can. And I think, me personally, um, 
We are not just brains that need to connect virtually with people, even though we're connecting virtually via a podcast, but, but you need to actually physically, where you can be physically with people because we are bodies. We need, we need physical presence. To be, I think it's just such an important part of who we are as human beings. Uh, do we need to win, thankfully, and hopefully all this is over or, or becomes less of a threat, uh, do we need to rebuild our communities, do you think? I think there's a big danger that, that is coming into, um, or we're kind of seeing it come to a head, I think, in our community, in the, in the broader community of division. Uh, and I think there's a good opportunity for the church to, to, to do the opposite and be united around something that's positive, which is Jesus as our head. Uh, and I think in that, there will be a sense of needing to rebuild but I think it has to start in the church, and I think the church has an opportunity to show it is different to, what, to the, the division that's happening elsewhere. Well, that's a bit of a problem at the moment, Rito, as, as you know for yourself, because churches are under level four. We, we can't meet together, so we're worshipping virtually. Um, so how do we regain a sense of community when the church itself has been not closed down, but certainly isolated? Yeah, that's difficult, isn't it? And I think we do our best where we can at the moment, uh, and let's hope that you know this doesn't go on for for too much longer. Uh, but that when we have opportunity, let, let's try and meet and 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 gather as as the church, but also gather in smaller little ways wherever we can as well. I'm just thinking about folk who are isolated on their own in lockdown. Uh, how how do they cope? What do they do? What's what are some practical things that people can do to get through this? I, the sense of isolation and and alienation it feels like too, because you feel alienated from other people, or at least I do. Yeah, and what does that what does that do to you? Kind of just overall well being. It's not good, is it? You, know, no. you, you don't want to get up in the morning. You don't want to do anything. Well, it's very. It, the whole thing's been very demotivating. Mm. You know, I think for business people, talking to the business community, they find it very, very difficult. They say, we can't plan anything. People who run small businesses can't plan. You, you'll know if you're listening. You can't plan anything. You've got, you can't buy stock. You don't know how, whether people are going to be coming to your store. You don't know whether people are going to be coming to your restaurant or your cafe. What do you do? How, and how do, you, how do you bring faith into it? How is your faith going to help you through it? Yeah, it's a it's a huge issue, isn't it? And that kind of uncertainty. I was reading some things the other day saying that you know cafes had bought stock and then they you know kind of had to throw it out and mm. all that stuff. It's a, it's a huge just expense and the kind of the the stress that, that goes along with that, and not knowing if your business is going to survive. Oh, yeah, it is very difficult. Right, I think I think that's what we just we need to acknowledge that first and foremost. Don't push that away. Don't don't just say oh no this will be fine. It's all okay. No, it is difficult. It is stressful. But we need to be firstly looking to God's sovereignty in this. What, what is he doing? How, what is he revealing in us? What can we really trust? Can we trust uh, kind of ourselves or kind of the government to save us or other things to save us? No, we can't. He's the only one that can ultimately be, be trustworthy. That's yeah. the first thing, I think. Yeah, that's a really good point when you say we can't trust the government to save us because I think a sector of the community, from what I observe, is doing that. Yeah, I'm not trying to be anti-government. No, no, no. We're not. We're not. <laughs> please don't hear us as being anti-government. Not at all. No, but there, you're right. Though, that we there's a lot of people who've put all of their trust in the government and saying the government should save us kind of mm. from different things, whether it's from being sick or financially or whatever it is. But ultimately, I think that's going to be mis, misplaced trust. 
Mm. All right, Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. Is there anything else you want to add? Not really. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think the, the, the connectedness that God has made us to be connected communities, I think is so important that even if, you, if you're feeling isolated, often that can get you down uh, and, and lead to further isolation that you actually need to um, not necessarily expect other people to connect with you, but maybe you get out and connect with other people, you know, even if that's virtually, you kind of t- take the step in, in getting connected with others. Yeah, have a Zoom meeting, because I've recently discovered Zoom. You just get a group of people on Zoom and have a Zoom meeting. Yeah, well, and, or, you know, Facebook Messenger or mm. Skype or whatever, they, you know, and you, you put on the funny little images that you can do of your face, have a bit of fun with those types of things. And I know that they're, they're not the ideal, are they? But at least... They're kind of ways of connecting with others. Mm -hmm. Okay, Ian, thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.